Today, we get to verse 28, and Jesus is approached on friendly terms. It's the first round of questioning where he's not trying to be trapped, but somebody actually approaches him on friendly terms. A scribe, a professional theologian, an expert in all matters of the Bible and Jewish law. He sees how well Jesus has been answering all these questions put to him, and he asks him another one. He says, which command in the Old Testament law is the most important of all of them? We're going to see how Jesus answers that question this morning. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and that there is no one else except him, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. This is the word of the Lord. This is, without a doubt, one of the most famous portions of the entire Bible. Love God and love others. It's also probably one of the most misunderstood. Uh, It always seems like the most well-known Bible verses are always the ones that are most misunderstood. There are two massive misconceptions related to Jesus' answer here that I find almost always show up, at least implicitly, when people quote this passage. The first is that with his answer to this question, Jesus is relaxing God's law. That he's making it easier to obey God. I read a story the other day about a a very famous Christian musician who caught some flack for a decision that she made uh, that either was, you know, could, could easily be interpreted as contradicting God's clear commands in Scripture or at least endorsing somebody else who was doing that. And so when she was asked why she did it, her answer was, Jesus narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other, and that's pretty simple. What a perfect summary of the first misconception, that in saying love God and love others, Jesus was, was just making God's law really simple and easy to obey. The second misconception is that Jesus was shifting the, the center or the essence of religion from doctrine to ethics or from belief to action. From, from a creed or a confession to a code of conduct. This idea is at the heart of what historians call modernist Christianity. Uh, modernism was a, a movement that arose in the late 1800s into the early 1900s and really by the middle of the 20th century became the dominant expression of Christianity in America. It's summed up by uh, an early 20th century professor named Shiler Matthews at the University of Chicago, he wrote a book called The Faith of Modernism. And he says, and I think this, this really sums up this second misconception, he writes, The world needs a spirit of love and justice, and is told that love without orthodoxy will not save from hell. It needs international peace, but sees the champions of peace incapable of fellowship, even at the table of their Lord. It needs faith in the divine presence in human affairs and is told it must accept the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It needs hope for a better world order and is told to await the speedy return of Jesus Christ from heaven to destroy sinners. Will such answers today bring in the reign of justice and love? In other words, who really cares if your doctrine is just right? Just love each other. That's the most important thing. 
We're going to see this morning that both of these misconceptions are just that. They're misconceptions. They badly mistake the point that Jesus is making, and they actually leave us, frankly, no better off than we would have been without Jesus at all. Misconception number one, Jesus' words relax God's law. Jesus here is asked, what's the greatest or the most important command in the Old Testament law? And he gives two answers, both of which are quotes from the Old Testament. The most important, he says, is listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It's the beginning of what Jewish people called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word that means hear or listen, the first word of the command. And it was so important that when God gave it to the people, he told them in the following verses, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. In other words, nothing was more important for the people than to love God with their whole being. It was to be the the central organizing principle of their lives. Now, different people at different times have interpreted this, and they've tried to sort of break up people into the four components that Jesus, you know, talks about here. So they say, you know, Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That means, like, all your emotions and, and your spiritual life and your thoughts or your intellect and your bodies. And I, I guess that's fine if that helps you to sort of take a, an inventory on how, you know, how you're loving God in the different areas of life. That's fine. But I think the greater point that Jesus is making here is just that you are to love God with your whole self. Jesus is giving a sweeping overview of all that is in the human being. And he says, love God with all of that. There's a children's book that we read to our kids that you probably had read to you as a child, or if you have kids, you may read it to them now. It's called Guess How Much I Love You. And it has a little baby bunny rabbit and a daddy bunny rabbit. Uh, and they say things to each other like, I love you as high as I can reach, and I love you as high as I, as I can hop, and, and finally, I love you right up to the moon and back. And Jesus' answer here is, and, and Deuteronomy before him, is as if he's saying, love the Lord your God as high as you can reach. Love the Lord your God as high as you can hop. Love the Lord your God right up to the moon and back. And then Jesus immediately moves to the second command. Now he clearly prioritizes the first one. Loving God is most important. But in answering the question with two commands, Jesus is intimately connecting love of God and love of others. He again quotes the Old Testament, this time Leviticus 19.18. And in fact, this is the most quoted Old Testament law in the New Testament. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a lot of modern commentators and preachers of this text often insert here something like, you actually love God first, and then you love yourself, and then you love others, because Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and so he's assuming that you love yourself. And so they preach whole sermons and series on self-love, all based on the the apparent implication or assumption of Jesus uh, that is supposedly in this text. Now, to be clear... There's nothing wrong with having a good view of yourself. Like, that's a a healthy thing. But that's just not the the point. Like, Jesus is not making the point here that first you need to love God, and then you need to love yourself, and then you need to love others. And frankly, it's not a point that biblical commentators got from this text for, like, 2,000 years of interpreting the Bible, right? You, You would search Augustine or Aquinas or Luther or Calvin in vain for any reference here to loving yourself, The point is clear. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. 
The biblical scholar R.T. France, in his commentary on Mark, says that it, it was a common practice for scribes and theologians and sort of Bible nerds in Jesus' day to ask people, ask each other questions like the one the scribe asks here. And he even recounts a famous story where one rabbi said to another, teach me the whole law while I'm standing on one leg. In other words, how, how short, how quickly can you condense the entire law? And they would even ask, like, is there a command that in itself contains all the others organically. That seems to be what's going on here. John Piper helpfully sums this up. He says that Jesus' answer must mean that if a person understood and obeyed these two commandments, he would understand and fulfill what the, old, what the whole Old Testament was trying to teach. He says everything in the Old Testament, when properly understood, aims basically to transform men and women into people who fervently love God and their neighbor. So, Jesus, what's the most important command? Love God, love others. Doing so, you'll fulfill the whole law, all the commands of God. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy, right? But as I, I pressed into this conversation mentally this week, I began to be troubled with the question. It's a pretty, it seems like a pretty basic question, but the question is, what is love? Jesus says to love God with your whole self and to love others as yourself. What what does that mean? What in the world does it actually mean to love someone? And where I particularly got hung up was asking, how can we define the word love in a way that applies both to God and to other people when God and others are so radically different? Back in Advent, I preached a sermon on love from 1 John and talked a good deal about how our, our modern culture flattens love to just romance. And I refer to C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Four Loves. He talks about four different kinds of love based on four Greek words. And, and the Greek word used here in, in, in Mark's gospel is the word agape, which if you've been a Christian for a while, is probably like the first Greek word that you, you like everybody knows that word, right? Agape. Uh, so so what is, it's not romance, it's not family love. What, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, here's the definition that I've got for you. Love, in regards to other persons as opposed to objects, is a delight in the other, a desire for the good of the other, and a devotion to work for the good of the other. So three components, delight in another person, a desire for their good, and a devotion to work for their good. In relation to God, then, love is a posture of delight. There's an old question and answer document about sort of the basics of Christianity called the Westminster Catechism. And the very first question asks what the chief end or the ultimate purpose of humankind is. And the answer is our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Humans were made to enjoy and delight in God. Psalm 103 says we bless him and remember all his benefits. Psalm 96 says we worship him in the splendor of his holiness. To love God is to delight in him. We also, second component, desire God's good. But what could that possibly mean in relation to God? What does God need? What does it mean to want his good? Well, since we cannot add to God, he's complete in himself, we have to ask, what does God, who has everything, desire? What does God want? The answer is, he desires for his glory to be known by humans. That is, Psalm 34 puts it, he wants us to taste and to see that he is good. 
He wants the nations of the world, Psalm 67, to be glad in him. God's greatest desire is for us to delight in him. Which means that to love him is both to delight in him and to desire that we would delight in him more. And finally, what does it mean to be devoted to work for his good? Again, our work cannot benefit God as though he were helped by humans. Acts 17 says that very clearly. But if his good is his glory and our delight in him, that means we we have to be devoted in delighting him. We have to actually live our lives in such a way that we're working to delight in him even more. And what does that look like? It looks like a life of worship. It looks like a life of obedience. To love God, then, is to delight in him, to desire greater delight in him, and to work for greater delight in him through worship and obedience. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying is the greatest and most important command. Now, is that simple? Is that easy? Like, what, what human being comes into the earth thinking, I think I'll delight in God? <laughs> Even when you've been trying to for years, you wake up, and how, like, how hard is it to, to fix your mind and your heart on God? How many times a day do, do your desires move to other things? It's not easy. It's not simple to love God. Nobody naturally delights in him. Jesus isn't relaxing God's law. In fact, it's easy to keep a bunch of rules. It's hard to love somebody. What about love of neighbor? Again, let's define it. First, to love your neighbor is to delight in your neighbor. Now, I don't mean that you necessarily have to enjoy every single thing that your neighbor does. Uh, Your neighbor, doubtless, does lots of things that are not enjoyable. It would not only be an impossible standard, but probably also an unjust standard to tell you to like everything about somebody. So what does this mean? Well, I, don't, I really don't even mean delighting in the good things. Like, you can delight in the little things about somebody that you enjoy. But the, the greatest thing about your neighbor is not their sense of humor, which is subjective. It's not their intelligence, which is changing and in flux all the time. Uh, it's not their strength or their beauty, which will doubtless fade as they grow old. The greatest thing about your neighbor is the indelible image of God imprinted onto him or to her. To delight in your neighbor is first and foremost to enjoy that. It's to see God in them and to delight in that. Which, by the way, means that you can't truly love your neighbor unless you first love God. And from that delight, we desire our neighbor's good. Again, certainly this includes lower goods like material and physical blessing and health and success. But again, primarily, first and foremost, we're talking about their greatest good, that they would love God, that they would delight in God, which again means we can't desire that for them unless we first love God. And third, not only do we desire our neighbor's highest good, but we work for it. We pray for them. We do good to them. We show them the love of Christ. We tell them the good news about Christ. To love your neighbor, which we can only do if we first love God, is to delight in God's image in them, to desire that they would delight in God, and to work toward that end. That is the second greatest command. Now, how are we doing on that one? Are we doing any better than we do at loving God? Again, naturally, no one does this. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking that you do. Uh, Especially in, in our day, we're so attuned to the great needs of the world We think, I I love humanity, and we're for all kinds of causes that display our great love for humanity. We want to end poverty. 
We want to end hunger, and we want to make sure everybody has clean water, and we want to end systemic injustice and human slavery, and, and, and those are all great causes, right? And we should work toward those things. But how are you actually doing loving the person who's sitting next to you? How are you doing loving the person who lives in your home or who lives in the home next to you? In Fyodor Dostoevsky's classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, there's an elder at a local monastery who talks about this. He talks about the love of others, and specifically he talks about the difference in loving the world in general and loving individuals in particular. And he says, I love mankind, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. That I often, in my youth, went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind, and it may be I would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. And yet, I'm incapable of living in the same room as anyone for even two days. As soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. He says, in 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. Aren't we the same way? I may love the world, but how often do I lose patience with my children? I may love the world, but how often do I fail to speak gently to my wife? How often do I covet things that my neighbors have that I want? Jesus says the whole law is summed up in two commands. Love God with your whole self. Love your neighbors as yourself. Delight in God. Desire to delight in him more. Work to to delight in him more. Delight in your neighbor. Desire their good. Devote yourself to working for their good. Does that sound like a relaxing of God's law to you? Does that sound like Jesus is, is simplifying things? No, Jesus, by summing up the law with the command to love God and others, is not relaxing it. He's heightening it. He's not simplifying it. He's making it more difficult. He's making it seemingly impossible. Love God with your whole self and love others as yourself, Jesus says, but instead we love ourselves with our whole self and we use others for ourselves. St. Augustine talked about the importance of rightly ordered loves. True virtue, he said, is found in having rightly ordered loves, loving God first and foremost, God who is himself infinitely worthy of our love, and then everything else after that will just come into right order. But if you love yourself first, or some extension of yourself like money or pleasure or your spouse or whatever, if you love yourself more than God, then all of your loves will be disordered. And the reason is because we we all love something as ultimate, and we actually only love everything else in relation to that thing that we love as ultimate. So if we love God first, We'll love everything else rightly in relation to him. But if we love ourselves first, we will just use other people for ourselves. That's disordered love. And according to Augustine, at least, it's incompatible with being a truly virtuous person. I was struck the other day with a vivid picture of disordered love in the most unexpected place. In Hundred Acre Wood with our friend Winnie the Pooh. Pooh Bear, it turns out, has horribly disordered loves. Uh, more than anything else, Pooh Bear loves honey, which means that more than anything else, he actually loves himself and honey as an extension of himself. Now, I don't want to wreck anybody's view of Winnie the Pooh, but there was one particular day that I was reading about when Winnie the Pooh woke up and he was out of honey, and so he started a frantic search for more honey, and he, he begins to ask, where does honey come from? He says, well, it comes from bees, 
And bees, he thinks to himself, exist to make honey for me to eat. Winnie the Pooh actually says that. That's actually printed in your classic children's books, that bees exist for, to make honey for me to eat. So what does he do? He goes to find some bees to lift some honey off of them, but they have it stashed so high up in a tree that he can't get to it by himself. And so he goes to ask his friends, particularly Christopher Robin, to help him. What does he want to do with Christopher Robin? Does he want to say, how's your life going? How's your week been? How's your family? How's your job? No, he says, hey, friend, help me steal some honey from these bees. Can I borrow a balloon? And so Christopher Robin obliges and gives him a balloon and he floats up to the top of the tree and he begins to steal honey from these bees who are just minding their own business. And understandably, they get upset at him and they start stinging him. And then they sting his balloon and it pops and he falls all the way down to the ground. Unfortunately, he's caught by his friends who probably also just exist for him. Undeterred by this incident when he goes to see Rabbit, knowing that Rabbit will have honey. And he offers him a spot of honey with his tea. And Winnie looks at it, very disappointed, and says, can I have some more? And next thing you know, he's eaten like five jars of honey. And Rabbit no longer has any honey. And Winnie the Pooh has gained so much weight in the process that in trying to leave Rabbit's house, he, he actually gets stuck in the door. And now for days on end, Rabbit can't go in and out of his house. And all of Hundred Acre Wood has to come and form an assembly line to try to pull Winnie the Pooh out of Rabbit's door. Winnie the Pooh has horribly disordered loves. He loves himself first and uses his friends in order to prop up his search for honey. But we do the exact same thing. We don't love God first. We don't delight in him or desire to delight in him more. That's not our great goal in life. We just love ourselves. And because we love ourselves first, our desires are disordered and we use other people in the process. Jesus, again, is not relaxing God's law. He's tightening it. And in the process, he exposes how far short of it we fall. The second misconception that I mentioned is is the idea that Jesus shifts the essence of religion from doctrine to action. Now, it's interesting. Jesus here has a friendly interaction with this scribe. Again, the scribe asks him the question because he, verse 28, saw that Jesus answered them well. And, And when Jesus answers the scribe's question, the scribe commends him. He says, you have answered correctly, verse 32. Now, by the way, it's a funny irony that the scribe thinks that he is commending Jesus on Jesus' knowledge of God's word when Jesus is himself the living word of God in human flesh. But nonetheless, Jesus, in love and humility, bears with him, and he returns the kindness, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What an interesting response. Why not far? Why doesn't he say you are in the kingdom of God? As a quick aside, by the way, the the Deuteronomy 6 quote in itself contradicts the second misconception. The idea that that it's a code of conduct and not a creed or confession that matters most. Because even before the command to love God is given, a doctrinal statement is made. The Lord is one. That's a, a claim to what's called monotheism, the idea that there's only one God, only one true God, and it's the God who's revealed in the Old Testament. And the scribe recognizes that, verse 32, he says, he's one and there's no one else except him. So th- this doctrinal statement is inserted before the command to love God, because if we don't know through doctrine who God is, then even if we try to love him, we're just going to end up loving a God who doesn't exist. But Jesus here also contradicts this second misconception In his response that the scribe is not far from the kingdom of God. If Jesus were shifting the essence of religion from doctrine to action, 
and saying that all that matters is love of God and others, then presumably he would have said, you're in the kingdom of God. Congrats. You get it. You understand what's most important. You're doing it. Great job. You're in the kingdom of God. But instead, what does he say? He says, you're not far. Jesus knows that, that neither this scribe nor any of his other hearers nor anybody who's read this account for the last 2,000 years, nor anybody sitting in this room today can actually obey those two commands. It's impossible. But recognizing that these two commands summarize God's entire will for your life, summarize all of God's law, is a start toward the kingdom of God. Why? Because if you believe that the most important thing that God wants you to do is to love God and to love others. Presumably, you'll start trying to do that. And very quickly after you started trying to do it, you'll realize that you have absolutely no power or ability to do it. You're completely incapable of making yourself love God or making yourself love others. And then what? Well, then you'll fling yourself at the feet of God and beg for mercy because you know that you're so incapable of obeying his law. And in Christ, he will be glad to give it. And that, not your love for God or others, but God's love for you received by grace through faith is what moves you from being not far from the kingdom of God to actually in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only one who perfectly loved God. That's a doctrine, that Jesus was sinless. That matters. Jesus is the only one who perfectly loved God. In fact, God the Son has been delighting in his Father from eternity past. And that did not change when he took on human flesh in Christ. He did everything necessary through perfect worship and perfect obedience to maintain the timeless and boundless infinite love that he had for his Father. And Jesus perfectly loved his neighbors. He perfectly delighted in God's image in other people. He desired their highest good. He was so devoted to it that he went to the cross to secure it for them. Jesus fulfilled the whole law of God, the law of of love. But did he get the reward or the blessing for his obedience to God's law? No. He willingly took on himself the curse and the punishment that we deserve for our lack of love. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of love, but he went to the cross to be crucified for our lovelessness. He took the penalty for us. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserved, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again because death was not able to hold him. And now, if you have faith in him, in his life, and in his death, and in his resurrection, two amazing things happen for you. Not if you work hard enough, not if you're good enough, but if you have faith in him. The first is that you are totally and completely forgiven for all of your lack of love for God and for other people. Listen, you know, you know that you don't love God the way that you should. You know you don't love other people the way that you should. If you've forgotten, just like wait until lunch and then reflect on how did I love the person that I had lunch with. But if you have faith in Christ, In his death and resurrection for you, you are totally forgiven of all of your lack of love for God and other people. But that's not all. The second thing that happens if you have faith in Jesus is his spirit. The Holy Spirit actually comes to live in you, comes to take up residence in you. 
And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of love. Romans 5 says that through faith, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do you know what that means? It means that when you have faith in Christ, you actually can start to love God. The, the, the God that we worship, that we believe in, is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and theologians have said that, that in the, the internal life of God from eternity past was a, a relationship of love between Father and Son, and the Spirit is actually the, the personal love that is shared between the two of them. In other words, infinite and eternal love comes to dwell in you when you have faith in Christ. That empowers you and and enables you and awakens in you a love for God that you didn't have before. And it empowers you to start loving other people. Uh, The the New Testament book of 1 John actually says that love for others, real, true, God-centered love of others, is the incontrovertible proof that you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And then if you don't truly love others, it's the proof that you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. When you have faith in Jesus, not only are you forgiven of your lack of love, but the spirit of love is poured out into your heart, awakening a love for God and for others. So, what do you love? Whom do you love most? Do you love God most? Are your loves rightly ordered? Do you love God who is infinitely worthy of your highest affection most? Or do you love something else first? Yourself or some extension of yourself. Your spouse, your children, your job, freedom, money, pleasure. If you love any of these things first, they'll make you do terrible things and mistreat and use other people. And in the end, they'll let you down anyway. But God won't. God is far and away the object most worthy of your highest love. Think just for a moment with me about the beauty of God. He is infinitely holy, and yet he is love. He is infinitely powerful, and yet he pays attention to you. He is all-knowing. And yet he speaks to us through his word in ways that we can understand. He's perfectly just. And yet he's the justifier of sinners through the death of his son, Christ. Look to God. Look to God in all of his Christ-revealed beauty. Ask him to forgive you for your lack of love. Ask him to fill you with his spirit of love. And he will. Do you see, do you you believe that love is the most important command? If so, you're not far from the kingdom. And God, the Bible tells us, delights to give us the kingdom.